Hey everybody, Neil Thompson here. I want to let you know about the Teach the Geek to Speak Society. What is it? Glad you asked. It's a monthly membership whereby you get access to my public speaking course, Teach the Geek to Speak. You also get access to a private Facebook group and monthly Zoom calls. Get ongoing support in your efforts to improve your public speaking. To learn more about the membership, click on the link in the show notes. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's a platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is Teach the Geek to Speak Society. It's a membership, a monthly membership, where you can get ongoing support for your public speaking efforts. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Natalie Coleman, and she has lived quite the life. I'm, (laughs) I'm sure there's more in store for her. Combat veteran, adjunct professor, county board member. I think she walks old women across the street in her spare time too. (laughs) She's also the founder of After the Peanut, an organization that provides professional development, curriculum, tutoring, and engaging STEM programs for educators and students. I'm curious to know more about the evolution of After the Peanut and the other lives that Dr. Coleman has lived. Dr. Coleman, welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I think what you're doing is amazing. Glad we were able to connect. Uh, love love the backdrop you have there. So thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, for the money I paid for it, I hope you love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, first question. From the bit of background digging that I did on you, I saw you got your first degree in chemistry. Where did that interest come from? I am not 100% sure where my interest in chemistry came from, but I do remember um, as a kid, I asked my parents for a chemistry set for Christmas, either like fourth or fifth grade. And I I originally wanted to go into chemical engineering and uh, went ahead and changed my major to chemistry at the University of Illinois when I got there in 1997. So I don't know if it's like just I don't know. I like math quite a bit. And there's a lot of math and chemistry. I do like the idea of the chemical reactions. That's my favorite part of chemistry, right? That's kind of how everyday life is. That's how we get the products that we use. The the vehicles that we drive are made out of, you know, manufactured elements that are combined to create the plastics and all the different things that we use in this world. I mean, even like the headphones that you have on the backdrop, you know, it had to be a certain type of material to be able to put your logo on it. So I just, I guess that was just fascinating to me over time. And I um, I just, I like all things about science because it's always something to explore. And I did realize that what I like about science is that it is somewhat exact, <laughs> right? Like gravity is gravity, no matter who you are, what you are, where you are here on earth, right? So it's always going to be there. And now what can we do with that? Well, we can, build aircraft that can kind of defy gravity. So, I mean, I go on and on. So I just think it's science is just 
fascinating. STEM is just fascinating to me in so many different ways and things you can explore with it. Well, you did go on and on because you didn't stop with a bachelor's degree. You got a master's and a PhD. Was that part of the plan? Or, and if not, what motivated you to get those degrees? So I do like school. I have even um, been a business owner. I know now that even though I'm done with like my science and educational degree, so I have a terminal education degree, um, I like school. So I know I want to take some business classes. I just think learning is, is so much to learn. And to be the best at your craft, um, I do think it takes like hands-on, like in the field, I call it on the battlefield with the troops, you know, in the classroom with the students, you can learn that way. But you can also learn by going to school and studying theory to then apply it. So what I learned quite a bit earning my master's in, in curriculum and instruction and my doctoral degree in educational policy and leadership is that there's a lot of theory everyone kind of knows what's the best way to do something. Now my goal is to apply that. So my thing is how do you turn theory into application to produce more well-rounded students who know STEM? So everyone might not want to go into STEM, but everyone I think should be exposed to it and starting at a young age. So I just, and, and I was in the military, the military offered great benefits in Illinois already and then after being deployed, I received additional benefits and I used them just to advance my educational career in that pathway. So I'm very excited. I originally wanted to be an FBI agent or Chicago police working in forensics. Um, after being deployed as military police, I kind of changed my mind about that and thought education would be good because growing up, I had un I had one African-American female science teacher, one Hispanic male teacher, and one African descent. Um, I, I'm not sure which country he um, originated or, or came from, not originated from, but came from, but he was my professor in college. So I can count three, right? Three minority teachers my entire time um, as far as science and going through school. And so I thought this is a good way for me to be a role model. I always think about Charles Barkley saying he's not a role model. Like that was a big deal back in the day. And I'm like, you are, man. People are watching you, whether they, you say it or not, you are a role model. So like, I, I wanna be a role model. I wanna show girls, boys, kids of all races that African-American women, you know, know science, can do science and can have fun with science. Cause I consider myself hip. I, I, you know, age is a number, you know, science is not boring. It doesn't have to be boring. Um, so I just, I love education. I love what I do. I don't know if that's how it works, Dr. Coleman. If you consider yourself hip, that makes you hip. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if only it were that simple. <laughs> well, you know, you did mention your military service and I also mentioned it in the intro. Where did your military service fall within your, I guess, your degrees or your career? So when I arrived at the University of Illinois in 1997, I joined ROTC. And upon graduation, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant. I was in the National Guard for 13 years. So my, my military career spanned from 97 to 2010. And that I went through two, two degrees, two degrees. Three degrees I earned while I was in the military. Well, I was working on my third one when I um, resigned um, as a captain. So for 13 years, it's basically like I had a part-time job. And in the midst of that, 
between 2002 and 2003, I was deployed to Iraq for 15 months. And when I returned is when I said, I wanna be an educator. So I uh, went to Governor State and earned my master's there. And then I began teaching in 2007. Um, earned my master's by 2012. By that time I was out of the military, but the military gave me a lot of the discipline and leadership skills that I still uh, use and hold on to today and, and use to grow my team, continue to grow myself. Um, the military plus this situation with COVID has really showed me what resilience is about and teaching that to students. So my military career just overlapped my educational journey um, from teacher to administrator. Gotcha. From the intro, I also noted noted that you are an adjunct, adjunct professor. What do you teach as an adjunct? I teach, I teach chemistry at the University of St. Francis in Joliet, Illinois. Um, and the majority of the students are nursing majors. Some are uh, going to be radiologists as well, but probably 90% are nursing majors which I, I tell them all the time, like your job is extremely important. Often patients are gonna see you more than they see the doctor. We talk about bedside manner. I've had family members in the hospital to experience good and bad things with nurses. Um, and then I teach them about, of course, the chemistry itself, but also like it's okay to not know something. I have to often tell them every semester, quit apologizing when you ask a question. Like you're here to learn. I'm here to teach you. So I've been doing that for over seven years and it's really enjoyable. Um, actually the person who took my teaching position at Bloom High School when I came to become an administrator was teaching the course, but she was starting to have a larger family. Um, she was working a little further from home. She was like, hey, do you wanna teach this class? And I'm like, sure. So, so I shout out to Mallory who got me into St. Francis and it's been a nice ride there for seven years as an adjunct. Nice. So what I really am interested to learn more about is after the peanut. So what was the what was the motivation for starting after the peanut? And I mean, I gave a brief introduction as to what it provides, but perhaps you can go into more of what it does provide. So as a high school teacher, I worked at a school that was predominantly African-American and Hispanic. And one of the assignments that I gave the students was to find a scientist that looked like them and basically do like a, a research paper on that person. And I had a student tell me, oh, no, it's nobody. It's no black guys. It was an African-American kid. And I'm like, there are. And so I, I, of course, first name that I came out was George Washington Carver. And kind of some of the kids said, yeah, we know, yeah, peanuts. And I'm like, there's more. So I was trying to name more. And I kind of only had a certain, you know, list myself. And I said, wait a minute, Matt, you, you have to buff up this list, you know, like you need to do a little bit more research yourself because these things are not taught in school. They're, they're not. That was one reason I gave the assignment. Um, and so in hearing that, I, um, I visited my nephews in Arkansas and I ran across this George Washington um, paperweight. I have it around here somewhere. And I was like, well, after George Washington, there were other inventors. There were other scientists. There were there are people who are doing things, you know, women, minorities. So I named the company after the peanut because after we talk about George Washington Carver, there are so many others, but he is kind of like a father of science when it comes to people's knowledge right off the bat of, you know, black scientists in this world that have made a difference. So that is where the name came from. And uh, 
I originally just focused on after school programs, but we've done so much now where we, you know, we are partnering with other community organizations and nonprofits, holding coding hubs uh, during the day school events, like, you know, kind of like an in-school field trip type of deal. Uh, tutoring has also been added to the choices that people have that they want to um, hire after the peanut as a vendor. So it's just been a great experience. Um, the biggest thing that has happened um, that kind of really propelled us is this summer, we have a 10 week summer STEAM camp at Lewis University in Romeoville, Illinois, where we're taking up to 30 kids and we're teaching them everything from coding to robotics. We have an art and museum week. So it's just been, it's really fun to me to know that what I, what I really wanna do is make sure every child that I can possibly come into contact with has exposure to STEAM and know the different careers, know the different jobs, and just be aware of the different things that they can learn practicing some of the things that scientists and engineers do. Nice, that's, that's excellent. And when it comes to the, I guess, the age range of the students that you work with, what is it? The age range right now is pretty much third grade through a senior in high school, or you could say nine-year-olds to 17-year-olds. I think getting students at the age of seven to nine is extremely important, interested. Um, there's proof and research that shows that uh, African-American boys in the fourth grade is where it's their turning point for math. Either they're going to get it or not get it, like it or not like it. And I think that's one reason I chose the age of nine, which is about third grade, um, to start start the different programs. So I've been in private schools, public schools, charter schools. Um, the kids that have enrolled into the summer camp are from all over Will County, Illinois. So it's just been a really, really wonderful time developing the programs and seeing what can be possible um, with this great team that I've been able to uh, recruit for the summer. So it's just been a really, a great feeling to move from like, here's one after school program at a school to, you know, expanding for kids across the county. Mm, interesting. When it comes to after the peanut, obviously there, there's a need or else it wouldn't exist. Why do you think something like it didn't exist where you're at currently or before? So I often think like, I, I think I've been in a, <laughs> in a tunnel. I'm like, everyone's talking about STEAM. It's happening everywhere. Everyone has STEAM programs. So as an administrator, one thing that I knew is that students who benefited from after-school programs usually had a parent who could pick them up. So right there, you eliminate a lot of the student population with after-school programs, right? Because if your parent can't pick you up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, 3.30, you know, you can't participate. You have no ride home. The other piece is that um, during the school day, especially in K through eight, there's so much emphasis on core classes uh, reading and math, those standardized tests kind of have been a, a hiccup, so to speak, um, for some <clears throat> where that takes priority and STEAM is kind of seen as an add-on. So you might see it as an elective for eighth graders or it's embedded in the science class. But for me, the lack of hands-on, that engineering piece was always missing in my education you know, you might have dissected a frog in some schools, or you might have built a roller coaster out of recycled, you know, materials. But when it came to the consistency, it wasn't happening. 
And so I think it's not happening for various reasons. One, other things takes priority. Two, it costs money to invest in steam because you need equipment. You know, you can use old materials. You can bring things from home. But at the end of the day, you're going to need technology. Uh, my, my buddies over at Lego, they come out with new robots every now and then, and they just released a new one. Uh, and so like updating what we do to go with what's going on in the world. Drones are another thing. Like drones were a thing in the 90s, you know, but now you can get a job where you're fixing those, building them, creating them, um, selling them. And so who's going to teach the kids about them, right? The, the school does not have the capacity to have a drone class for every kid or a robotics class for every kid at this point. So I feel like I am um, building out a brand that kind of makes up for what's not happening in a traditional school setting. So money is, is definitely one thing. Time is another. And then also people's uh, capabilities. For the most part, K through eight teachers do not have a science degree. They have a degree to teach science. They have a degree to teach, and then they may have taken some classes on how to teach science, but you far and few have a physics degree, chemistry degree, you know, a biomedical degree or anything like that. That doesn't happen until high school. By the kid, time kids get to high school, they kind of know if they like science, if they don't, you know. So I'm just trying to be a... Uh, provide solutions to the problems that I've seen locally and on a national scale. Interesting. When it comes to the opportunities for staying for students. So before, after the PIA existed, there was, at least I'm sure, some students in your area that went into STEAM in college or university, but because they didn't have a program like after the PIA, what do you think motivated them to go into into STEAM, even though, you know, you said the core curriculum focused on English and math? I think it goes back to representation, uh, parents' expectations, and the opportunities that they may have come upon. So I, I participated in a program called JAMS Keep. I can't remember what the acronym stands for. It's seven letters, I think, or eight. And it was at a college. Um, they taught us a lot of different things, cooking classes, computer classes, learned a lot about, I think it's called Mojang, the little game with matching tiles. Like that was a big thing when I was there. Um, and they took us on a college tour, you know, they took us to Michigan state and I, that was the college I picked. Like, and I said, I probably picked it because that's where I went. And that's something I knew I ended up somewhere else, still big 10, but it's like, I think exposure and, and representation. So I come from a household where my mother was an educator and my father was an electrician. So it kind of merged education and science in my house. I watched my parents read the paper, watch the news, be active in the community, active at church. And so I think that's where um, a lot of people may have gotten their influences from you know, seeing people around them, the scientists that they did see. It was, I grew up, you know, knowing people who were nurses and teachers. So I think there were, you know, silos of scientists or engineers or people encouraging students to do these things. Um, but it's always room for more. Um, and, and I think that that was, that's something that after the peanut brings, you know, we've been around this area now for going on seven years, but really more present in the last four to five. Gotcha. So when it comes to the work that you do with After the Peanut, I'm sure there's quite a bit of, of speaking that you have to do to convince others that this is a program that's, that's worthwhile. 
is public speaking something you've always been good at? And if not, what did you do to get better at it? So public speaking, um, I would say one of the things that the military prepares you for is presenting, right? But we used to call it death by PowerPoint. Like you put everything on the PowerPoint and you almost are like reading it. And then that just, like when I heard it, I'm like, that is terrible. Like why, you know, if you can read it to the people, they can read it themselves. So you have to kind of bring some bells and whistles into your presentations. Um, you have to make it interactive. So I do presentations for another organization um, as a consultant. And so I just, I watch other people who present. I do a lot of um, watching the motivational speakers, right? Because they're motivational speakers and they're nationally, internationally known for a reason. So some of the skills that they have, how you hold your hands, how you stand, how you should move around the room, like don't be glued to the podium. Um, so I would say I've learned more about public speaking through practice versus um, formal training. And I'm always trying to get better at it. Um, you know, keeping a smile on your face. And like I said, uh, working the room a little bit, but it's always something I'm looking to, to get better at. Um, and then getting the participants to do more interacting than you doing of the speaking, right? That's another thing that I think with public speaking. So it's a difference between like, you know, giving a keynote or a commencement speech versus doing a workshop. Um, and so I try to make a lot of my um, speaking engagements more workshop-like. That's one thing that I, I definitely continue to work on. Nice. So I, I don't know how, how good I am, but I get some good reviews from the people who participate uh, as far as it being engaging. So I just try to do what I did then and, and grow from there, you know, add to it. Gotcha. Yeah, well, you're as good as you are hip. If you're able to call yourself hip, then you can call yourself good at public speaking, yeah, yeah. why not? <laughs> Do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? So I often look at my audience because I get a roster sometimes, you know, if I'm presenting to eighth graders versus third graders versus, you know, teachers, the teachers who teach kindergartners. So I look at my audience first and then I think about what do they really want to walk away with? They want to walk away with what can I do in my classroom? What can I do next? How can I get the students more engaged? And so then I build my PowerPoint around the lens of seeing it from their perspective and not mine. I have a high school background, military background. I'm used to speaking more to adults than, than students, but sometimes I have to kind of just role play. And that's also part of um, some of the workshops that we have where we put in different scenarios where teachers have to say, how would you respond to this type of behavior? Or how do you make this activity more engaging? So I just, I look at the audience and then I build my presentation around what they need to say. They learn that day. What are the three, four objectives that I want them to walk away with? Yeah, you're smart for, for focusing on your audience when you put your presentations together. That was one of the first rules that I had to learn when I when I decided that I needed to get better at public speaking because for, if you don't know, Teach the Geek was really born out of my own struggles giving mm -hmm. presentations. I used to have to give them in front of management when I worked as an engineer and I was terrible at it. And I think one of the reasons I wasn't all that great at it was I wasn't taking the audience into account. I'd get up there and talk about things, use jargon that they wouldn't understand. And I would get questions afterwards that I thought I had answered during the presentation, but because I put it in such a way that they couldn't understand that they were asking me these questions, 
I have to answer them. And it's basically a, been a waste of my time and, and their time too. But I got wise fairly quickly. I got it eventually. <laughs> when it comes to present presenting, do you ever get nervous before you give a presentation? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Oh, yes. I, uh, I have a couple of things that I do before I present. And one is I kind of find a quiet space at the space that I'm in. Um, I think it's very important that I arrive there at least an hour or more before it starts to kind of just be in that environment and feel the room and get a space for like where I want to stand, where am I going to put certain activities, um, how do I want the, uh, everyone to sit, what will transitions look like. So getting to the space early and then actually saying a prayer um, prior to going on. I get more nervous speaking about myself than delivering um, something on a certain topic. And so I understand that what's probably going to happen is the weirdest thing. I can do a presentation and I'm, I'm fine. But then when it's over, my armpits are sweaty. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> that's the thing. It happens. It's like, so I think that's just my body's reaction. So I've accepted that. And I know that that's just what happened. So I'm not nervous if I can kind of feel that or I see that that happened, right? So I like to get in the space and kind of, I don't know, become one with it if that's what you want to call it. And once again, knowing like, okay, I'm going to have a superintendent in here, but I'm also going to have a teacher who's only been teaching for one year who came out of, you know, the business field. Knowing who I'm going to talk to is very important to me because it makes me hone in on what's going to help them when they leave this two hour or four hour workshop. Got you. And one suggestion for those sweaty armpits, yeah. industrial strength antiperspiration. <laughs> 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 Actually, seriously, one, one thing that I do is I wear sweaters. So okay. they, don't, they don't show sweat uh, pit stains as, as much as you know, like a like a long sleeve shirt. Yeah, I try to put on a blazer, you know. It's like, it's yeah. so funny. I mean, I, I realized this years ago. I was doing a training on like, it's called Next Generation Science Standards. Those are the, the science standards that most schools use across the nation. And I was like, I, I, I felt fine doing the presentation, but afterwards it was just weird. I'm like, oh, so, and then it just, it just happened. So it's like, all right. This is part of your your uh, ending of a presentation. It's, it's comical, but I mean, I guess everybody bodies react in a certain way. So I just, I like what I do. I think that's very important. Like you said, you have people who are very content knowledgeable, right? If I, you know, electrical engineer could talk all day about what electrical engineers do about their job, but making someone understand that who hasn't been in that field for 20 years is where you kind of put the cake, I mean, the icing on the cake for being that professional. Um, so I think that um, it's it's important to know your content, but also like what you're doing. How do you deliver it to an audience where they say, I want to learn more from that person? Because that's what I, I've learned is that we have such a short amount of time sometimes with professional development. I might only see this group once or twice during the school year. And eight hours is not enough to give them everything. So I have to kind of make sure I pull the highlights, the higher level things that are going to be more enduring long-term and the practical things that they can do. Gotcha. I just, I just, I think it's important just to enjoy what you do. Like I, I can't speak to that more highly and, and loving what you do because then people will naturally pick up on that. 
So when it comes to improving and in public speaking for those who are watching or listening and, and see the benefit of getting better at public speaking, what are some tips that you can offer them? So I would suggest standing in the mirror and really looking at yourself. Like people say, oh, I practice in the mirror, I practice before, but really practice your hand gestures, your stance, how you're positioning yourself and looking at yourself delivery, right? It, are you smiling? Is it a pleasant facial expression? Um, that's one thing. I rarely videotape myself. Um, so that the mirror is the, the practice for me. The other thing is I never write down everything I want to say. So you can look at my PowerPoint and you might see a picture of a sun on it. That tells me what I'm going to speak about, right? And I don't want it to sound so rehearsed or regurgitated that I sound like a robot because I want it to be an open conversation around whatever this topic is going to be. Um, so I limit the amount of material that I put on a PowerPoint or on a slide or pitch deck, whatever it is that you're using. Um, I also embed quite a few videos and opportunities for the group to work as an individual and then kind of pair up and have a conversation and then speak out to the entire group. Cause that kind of builds the confidence in themselves. Like, okay, here's my response. Okay, I'll talk to someone else. Oh, maybe I can add to my response. I didn't think of that. And then it's time to kind of speak to the whole group. So those are just some of the things that I include with, with my presentations. Um, I don't put too much pressure on myself to know everything. You're gonna know more than the people you're talking to. For the most part, that's why you're the speaker, right? So for the most part, you know, but then, you know, it might be some sharpshooters and people who've studied up and what I've learned, it's okay. People, people, it's funny to me, I have a chemistry degree. I taught chemistry, I taught physics. People can ask me something about astronomy and I have no clue and then study astronomy. And so I'm like, I'm okay with admitting that. It's like, and even if it is a field that you have a degree in, it's okay if you don't know everything, you know, that's an opportunity for you and the participant to learn. So not putting too much pressure on yourself to know every single answer that may be asked, but being prepared to, to pivot, know some places where you can go and find answers, that type of thing. Those are some excellent tips. This has been great speaking with you, Dr. Coleman. Thanks again. And where can people find you? So you can find me on most social media platforms. Um, the company is After the Peanut, all one word on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And then as an individual, uh, my um, handle is CEO Natalie Coleman on those same platforms. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. To learn more about Teach the Geek, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Coleman. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.